Hello, San Pedro Podcast, episode 86. Hey, I'm Amanda. And I'm Jess. And this is the Hello San Pedro Podcast. Join us as we talk with locals, community leaders, business owners, and people like us who love all things San Pedro. Every week, we'll explore San Pedro's deeply rooted culture, discuss local issues, and spread good vibes. Let's get into it. Before we get into the episode, we wanted to invite you to the 10th annual Dia de los Muertos Festival hosted by this downtown San Pedro district. This is not only a big deal for our community, but it also attracts tons of visitors from all over Los Angeles and beyond. The event will have live entertainment, including performances by Mariachi Divas, a two-time Grammy award-winning all-female ensemble, as well as folklorico dance groups, including local youth dance groups. The event will also consist of over 20 local vendors from our community, a beer garden, delicious food, and tons of crafts for kids. I'll be there and I hope to see you there as well. Hey guys, welcome back to the podcast. My name is Jess. I'm one of your co-hosts. Today we're going to focus on the other CD15's candidate that's running for city council. Um, I'll just go ahead and let them introduce themselves. Thank you. My name is Tim McCosker. Uh, I'm a candidate for city council, city of Los Angeles, born and raised uh, here in San Pedro. Uh, married to Connie McCosker, who many folks in this community know. Uh, five children, grown children. Uh, the son of uh, Mac and Pat McCosker. My dad's a retired LA City firefighter. My mom uh, worked in the home. And we go back in this community generations. Wow, that's I'm great. glad you bring that up because you do have quite the family history here in San Pedro. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure, sure, of course. Um, so my family came to this area for the same reasons a lot of our families came to this area, uh, for good work in and around the port, related to the port. On my dad's side, my grandpa and grandma came because my grandfather worked in the federal prison system. And he, was, uh, he wasn't a guard, he was a facilities manager, took care of prisons. And so he was in Joliet, Illinois, in the middle of February, I'm guessing, and this is the part of the story I make up, but he looked on the bulletin board, which I know is true, and he saw that they were opening a new prison in this exotic place called Terminal Island, California. And so sight unseen, he said he wanted to bring his family out. So my aunts, he had, he had two children already. My grandma and grandpa had two children, and they came out to, uh, to Terminal Island, found a house in San Pedro, which is uh, right around the corner from where I live now. And my dad was the firstborn in that branch of the family here in San Pedro. On my mom's side, my grandma was a single mom, a couple of kids living in the Boston area, Somerville, Mass. And it was a struggle for them uh, to uh, make do. Uh, and so she came to California. They came back and forth between California, but she had brothers in San Pedro who were longshoremen. And so she came out and, and, and they helped out and they lived in the back house. They lived in a garage actually in, uh, on 15th Street. And that was the origin of my mom's side of the family. And then my mom and dad met fell in love, had six kids, and that's the history of our family in San Pedro. Oh, wow. So you already had, on your mom's, your maternal grandmother already had brothers living in San Pedro, so that's kind yes. of what called them. Yes, called yes, yes. And then my, that grandma wound up, her name was uh, Wilma Gray, or Wilma uh, Russell, actually, um, and she had a restaurant on 6th Street called Wilma's Kitchen. Remember Skippy's Cafe, the little green building, Skippy's Cafe? I don't. Okay, well, it was torn down just recently. Uh, she had the restaurant before Skippy's Cafe. It was called Wilma's Kitchen. And the reason why I'm responding to your question is because she wound up marrying the, the person who I knew as my grandfather. Uh, she married Gene uh, um, uh, Eddie Gray, but his family had been in San Pedro before Los Angeles had uh, annexed San Pedro. Oh, wow. Yeah, so they go back generations. So it was, it's an association by marriage mm-hmm. uh, and not by blood, but he was the grandfather I knew, mm-hmm. and his family dated back uh, long before uh, the annexation of San Pedro to Los Angeles. That's great. Wow, that's incredible. Um, can you describe your upbringing here in San Pedro? Sure. It was 
it was wonderful. Uh, my, as I said, my, my dad worked outside the house. My mom worked in the house. Uh, they bought a place in uh, just before I was born, or just after I was born, I think. They bought a place in South Shores, which was a newer development. And it was the it was the affordable place to live in San Pedro, believe it or not. Oh my gosh, <laughs> that's so crazy to just yeah. think about right now. <laughs> yeah, in fact, there's a funny story because uh, I grew up on Vallecito Street, which is uh, above uh, 25th Street, a couple blocks up. And uh, when when my the story goes, when my mom and dad with with three kids in tow were looking for a house, they were looking at houses on Vallecito and on the on the land side, on the hillside, they had big yards or had yards in the backyard. And so those were the expensive houses. And my mom and dad looked at a house on that side of the street and said, it's out of our price range. And the agent said, well, let's look at one on the other side of the street. And the other side of the street was the ocean view side with virtually no backyard. And it was cheaper. <laughs> wow. And when they opened up the curtains and my dad saw this you know, panoramic view of Catalina Island, he said, oh, we'll take it. He's like, yeah, sold. <laughs> Anyway, I grew up. I grew up in that uh, in in that area, and there was six of us uh, eventually, and it was just a wonderful wonderful place to grow up. We uh, it was the era when you know in the morning on on non school days in the morning you'd you'd have a little bit of breakfast, you'd go outside, you'd play all day, and you'd you'd come in uh, after the lights went on, and you heard people shouting the names of the kids in the neighborhood, and you knew that eventually your name would get called too, and. And so you head home, and we we could roam the hills, and we uh, we had you know we had our Schwinn bikes, and we had you know, a little bit of change in our pockets, and we could. You ever cause any uh, trouble? <laughs> I I would say it was it would be minor. I mean, we were we were six kids, and we did stick together pretty close. But we had a great neighborhood, and we had great friends, and uh, it was a wonderful time to grow up. Do you have a specific place in mind that really like sparks your childhood memories? Well, actually, I do remember riding our bikes down to Portsacal. Hmm. And you could spend all day at Portsacal. You could live off the free samples at Hickory Farms. <laughs> and you, could, uh, you got to know the, you know the, the balloon guy and, the, and the, the clown and the puppet shows. Uh, I also remember riding our bikes to Marineland. Mm. Oh, yeah. yeah. So that's where Taranea is. Now. Where Terrena is now, yeah, you could ride. You could ride. It was a probably a dangerous ride, not one that I would uh, recommend to my kids or my grandkids. But we would jump on our bikes and we could ride to Marine Land. And uh, I'm sure the statute of limitations has expired on this, but we would go around back, throw our bikes in the bushes, and jump the back fence. <laughs> I think you're safe. Yeah, and you could play in Marine Land all day. Wow, that's great. Yeah, and got to know a lot of the. We did it so often. We got to know some of the trainers and the. Yeah. Oh, folks that worked awesome. there and a lot of, of course a lot of kids from the harbor area worked at Marineland back it's, in the day and now a lot of people from the area work at Terranea <laughs> that's right <laughs> that's great. right um, it's great to have those memories mm -hmm. um, what were some of your interests growing up um, I was uh, as corny as it sounds I was very interested in politics and government growing up involved in student government as a as a kid in school were you can, elected? Yes. Uh, I can remember um, when I, for one of the uh, ceremonies where we installed officers just in our little student government in junior high school, I can remember getting on the phone and calling Glenn Anderson's office. He was the congressperson. The Glenn Anderson Freeway is, might be your closest reference to him. Uh, calling Glenn Anderson's office and inviting him to come to install the officers. I can, and I was going to Holy Trinity School, and I can remember uh, inviting him, have, confirming his uh, presence, but forgetting to tell the principal. And I can remember getting called out of class and Sister Paula, the principal, being a little bit mad at me because a congressman showed up at the school and was wondering <laughs> when he was going to speak and where he was going to speak. Oh, no. <laughs> and they had no clue. <laughs> and they didn't know at the time. But I had a program, for, and I drafted up a program with our moderator. So you called on your own like volition you did that yourself yeah, yeah. wow yeah that's incredible so i was really interested and in, we we had a we had um, a lot of contact with our local government when i was coming up in um in school again i was i, I was was there a specific class or teacher that really sparked that interest in you or was it meeting someone it was a, a nun hmm. at holy trinity named sister mary joan god rest her soul i'm sure she's not well, i know she's not with us now but Sister Joan was very involved in, in civics, 
and she taught civics and government in junior high and she would invite uh vincent thomas wow the one who's the bridge is named after yes and she would invite uh um uh, well glenn anderson uh but she would have she would have different elected officials come to the school and speak to us and i remember uh her being quite an influence on my interest in local and state government wow that's incredible that's really cool what aside from um I guess like government and politics like were there other interests that sparked your well like a lot of kids growing up I you know, love playing sports and so played a little bit of everything um, I was uh, uh, I was brainwashed in a good way by my 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 dad and my grandmother to love Notre Dame football <laughs> so so like a lot of kids in that era and maybe kids today you know growing up you know loving a a team or a sport because of your your parents and mm -hmm. and so I, I followed sports I played sports I enjoyed student government um, and just loved playing with my friends growing up mm -hmm. cool. okay walk us through your career journey oh wow thank you so I um, uh, as I said my father was an LA City firefighter and my two older brothers were also firefighters uh, and uh, when I was uh, graduating from high school, um, I applied for three things. I wanted to be a longshoreman, a firefighter, or go to college. And the first one to get back to me, that's where I was going to go. <laughs> wow. And so the good news is, is that uh, for me and for my life, uh, you know, I, I went to the University of Notre Dame, which was always my first love. Um, I was able to uh, by good fortune through the unemployment office in Wilmington to get a casual card. So I was able to work some longshore during college, which is great, casual, back before the lottery system. So it was a different system. Mm -hmm. And it was just in summers, uh, working a couple of days a week. Um, and I never heard back from the fire department. If they ever get back to me, I might go. <laughs> <laughs> I actually did not realize that you have longshore experience here in the port. Yeah, it's it was, again, it was limited to... Um, uh, back in those days, the unemployment office, when there was a need for additional work for casuals, uh, you could get a card. And so I was actually working, I was working part-time uh, during school at, in summers um, at something called Cal Cartage when it was at, um, organized by the Teamsters. And uh, the one night somebody came in and said, hey, tomorrow morning, guys, uh, th there was going to be an abundance of work and folks will be getting cards from the unemployment office. So a whole bunch of us went over and we got work. And so, yes, it was just a couple of days a week at the most, sometimes less. You have to show up at the union office and wait for the, your, your letter to be called. Um, but I did have that experience. So after, after law school, I mean, after undergraduate, I went to law school. Um, you're talking about, when you say the, um, the office, uh, you're talking about the hall, right? Mm -hmm. Like, and they would, did they always have those speakers where it was really loud and you had to listen for your, your letter? Yeah. Okay, so I remember going with my parents as a child and I'm like, mom, how do you hear anything? Yeah. <laughs> They're just like, it almost sounds like an auction or something, but oh. it's like multiple uh -huh. people at once on loud megaphone speakers. Oh, wow. And it's like, how do you know who you're listening to? That's so funny. Um, <laughs> just to kind of dig in a little bit, do you remember specifically what you did um, on the docks? Like, Sure. Yeah. So the... The work for a casual like me in those days would, would either be bananas or coal. Okay, I know, I yeah. know about bananas. Yeah, and so bananas <laughs> back in those days was uh, was early, usually early in the week, mm -hmm. and I would look at the old news pilot and see whether or not a ship was coming in. If a ship was coming in, that was a good bet to go to the hall, and you're, you would, they would run through the letters, and you would get your call. Uh, but bananas was um, uh, in boxes, and I forget the weight of the boxes, but it was like 40 or 50 pounds maybe. And uh, then you would have a crew that would take a box and put it on a, on a gravity, basically a little conveyor belt by gravity, would go down to the person who would then grab that box and throw it onto a conveyor belt. And the third person would rest. And you'd do that 20 minutes gravity, 20 minutes throwing the boxes, and 20 minutes resting for a whole shift. And it was really, really hard work. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I was between 18 and 22 years old. So it was fun and interesting, but it was really, really, really hard work. It was like your gym class, essentially. It was like, it was like <laughs> a gym, gym class you got paid for. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so then you went to law school after mm -hmm. that. And um, what kind of law did you pursue? 
when I came out of law school, I got a job with a, a firm that did municipal work, municipal government work, uh, going back to my interest in local government. And it was a private firm, but what it did was it did city attorney work for small jurisdictions around Southern California. So places like Lameda or Manhattan Beach or Bellflower uh, would have contract city attorney services. And that's what I did for a few years. And I really, really enjoyed it. So I would be, I would be in a commission meeting or a council meeting and advising the legislators or the decision makers on policy and on the law not on policy, on the law. And in that period of time, I got to know the city attorney of Los Angeles, Jim Hahn, who lived in San Pedro at the time. And Jim Hahn brought me in to do a few projects uh, with the city of Los Angeles. And as we got to know each other, he brought me in to be his chief deputy city attorney in LA. So that was my path to you know, my, my background and, and, and education in city attorney work, in local government law, my experience there, and then I came in to be Jim Hahn's chief deputy, and lo and behold, he decides to run for mayor, <laughs> and he runs for mayor after, I served a term as his chief deputy, he runs for mayor, wins, and he brings me over to be his chief of staff in the, in the city, in the mayor's office. Oh, wow. Yeah. What was that like? It was a, a remarkable experience, it was an honor, an absolute honor and a really, really uh, difficult job. Yeah, I was going to say that's usually like the right-hand man. You're kind of like having to maneuver all of the things. Right, right. We had a, we, you have a, a staff in the mayor's office that's responsible for liaison work with the you know, more than 40 departments. And you also have to work with the hundreds of commissioners on all the various commissions. And then you work with the 15 council members. And it is a it is a really a, a, a point of contact between the executive branch and the legislative branch, uh, and uh, it was a remarkable experience, and it, it really the honor of a lifetime. Um, and how long were you there for? Therefore, the, the entire term. Mm -hmm. We served one term. Mm -hmm. We served one term. We actually lost our reelection, mm -hmm. which is an important part of the story because it's an important part of uh, my personal development. To work so hard and to have uh, to uh, have an opportunity to to uh, you know help the boss and work with the team to run for re-election and then to lose, and then that's a real moment where you you find out why you were doing it, you know. And I remember the importance of of thanking everyone we worked with, whether we worked with them at, in opposition or worked with them in collaboration. I can remember leaving the office and making sure that the transition, transitions between one administration to another are really important. I remember being on point for the transition from Jim Hahn to the next mayor, who was Antonio Villaraigosa, and doing everything in our power and making sure that we did everything in our power to um, assist in that tran transfer, to make sure all of the information was available, all the policies that we were working on were explained, the policies that they might implement different from ours, would have the potential for success mm -hmm. and knowing at that moment when we handed over the keys realizing that we did it for the right reason we were doing it to serve mm -hmm. and making sure that the next administration was as, as successful as it could possibly be mm -hmm. and after that what did you what did you do after that aftermath you know well I took a little vacation it sounds like you earned it <laughs> so yeah we took a little break and then when I uh, when I came back I did not look for work before I left mm -hmm. uh, we took the family and we we um, we stayed home for a little bit and we visited family and friends. Uh, my wife has family in Italy. We actually went and visited family, and uh, and then when I came back from that break, uh, sat down and started talking to law firms, and so I wound up joining a law firm and uh, building a local government practice mm -hmm. and representing uh, private parties in front of the government. Mm. And did you did that lead you up to this point? It did. It did. So my practice, because I had worked in so many parts of Southern California, my practice was initially very broad. It worked all over. I did not do any work in the city of LA um, ethically. And I made sure that I didn't rely upon my past role to establish a practice. So I, I, I did work around Southern California and worked with folks that were, that had, you know, you know, uh, 
needs uh, and uh, you know contracts and business interests uh, outside of Los Angeles, and then eventually you know came in and began doing work in and around Los Angeles. Uh, but I kept getting drawn over the course of the years. I kept getting drawn back to my harbor area, and so my my personal interests brought me back to the Chamber of Commerce in San Pedro. Brought me back to the Business Improvement District. I went and sat on the hospital board, which I'm still on. Um, and began doing, you know, while practicing law, doing a lot of uh, community work here in and around the Harbor area. And at what point did you end your law profession, I guess, and then switch over to community, full-time community work? Well, there was a, one of the clients that I began working for pro bono or low bono, you know, charging very little, was Altacy at the Port of Los Angeles. So years into my practice, um, I... Uh, met the folks who um, established Altacy, uh, and they had some needs for renegotiating the lease and, and, and reformatting some of the ways that the company was set up, the way the, the nonprofit was set up, and renegotiating the lease with the Port of LA. So I began doing that work, and I think it was the Altacy work that really drew me entirely out of the, the practice of law and entirely into community work, because at the end of that lease, I was asked at lease negotiations, I was asked by the board at Altacy and by the existing leadership at Altacy to come in and be the CEO. Mm-hmm. And so uh, several years ago, I, trans- I, I left my law practice um, and uh, uh, did the CEO work at Altacy and eventually just uh, eliminated my practice altogether. But then when the city council uh, uh, race you know, opened up, I made a decision then to leave Altacy altogether and to um, uh, focus full-time on running for council. And that was about a year and a half ago. Oh, wow. I didn't realize it was that recent, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's great. Um, I think that leads us to our next question, Mm -hmm. which is, can you tell us a little bit about, or can you tell us about the decision to run for city council? Like, how did that come up? Mm -hmm. And walk us through that. Sure. So the arc of my of career, which we just talked about, was from government service, practice of law, community work, and it began shifting over more and more to the community work, uh, just because of the stage I was at in my life. The kids were grown. My, Connie and I have five kids, mm-hmm. and the kids are growing, and they're doing well, and they're out of the house, and they have jobs and lives and careers. And so the community work is becoming more and more and more. And um, and, con- and for those of, those of you that know us, Connie and I are the team, a total complete team. Uh, she supports me in everything I do, I support her in everything she does. When uh, Councilman Buscayano decided to run for mayor, and the council position is on the same cycle as mayor, and it was actually Connie who said, uh, you know, Tim, your life is taking you here, this is something you've always wanted to do, uh, and you are, in a sense, she didn't mean I was doing the job, but in a sense, you're doing big chunks of this type of work and this job, you should run. And so it was really Connie's encouragement. Uh, other folks encouraged, but it was really Connie's encouragement. And so... I feel like usually it's the spouses who really see that gem within you and can bring up like maybe right. ideas that you don't see clearly at right. first. Yeah. Right. I think that's right. And it, it is a... It, it is a, a the running and serving is something that affects the entire family and it certainly affects the relationship so it's important to to do this make this decision together um time permitting we will get into your love story (laughs) 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 that's my job here um but so that kind of i want to ask a little bit for those of us who don't know is what does that role entail the local city councilman for cd15 oh thank you Mm -hmm. So to be a council person in the city of Los Angeles is a full-time job. And some smaller jurisdictions, it's, uh, it, it is not. It's a, you know, a part-time uh, service. It's important service, but part-time service. In Los Angeles, it's a full-time position. And the, each council district has uh, over 250,000 people in it. I mean, currently, the council districts are 260,000 people. And uh, the... the the role of the council member uh, is, as uh, the official role in the government, is to be one piece of the legislative body, which also has governing responsibilities. The council adopts 
collectively it adopts a budget, a multi-billion dollar budget, and collectively it works with the departments to implement that budget. Uh, and it, it, it serves, um, it shares with the mayor some, some uh, governance and executive role for managing how those tens of thousands of employees you know, carry out their functions. That's sort of the official governmental structure role of the council member, but uh, equally important, and I would say maybe in many cases more important, is constituent care. It's the role of the council office uh, to make sure that services are provided to, its, to the community, uh, to make sure that simple things like, that should be simple, sidewalks, streets, curbs, gutters, tree trimming, uh, potholes, all get attended to. Uh, to make sure that uh, every part of the community is, you know, part of the discernment process for what direction the government is going. So you can think of the, the role of the council member as being split between being on this legislative body and, uh, and enacting the policies and, and fulfilling the responsibilities of the government and also constituent care, making sure that those 260,000 souls are represented. And that's to address any issues that these constituents may have in their own, mm -hmm. specific to their communities. Right. Constituents will have issues that are, that are the, the everyday services that I talked about, but there will also be large policy matters within a community that where well, you, you discern with the community, decide which way the community wants to go, and represent the community to implement those plans. Hey, real quick, Amanda here to remind you that we have a Patreon. So if you've been enjoying the podcast and you're loving this episode, we'd love to invite you over to patreon.com slash hello Sam Pedro. There you will get access to weekly bonus episodes, which include um, extended interviews, fun segments like Facebook deep dive, as well as rapid fire questions with our guests. In this week's bonus episode, you'll hear from Tim McOsker on his Pedro love story. You'll also hear from Jess and I as we kind of process and talk about some of the key points that stood out with Tim's interview. We hope you enjoy. Um, we know that this is, could be a very longer thing, but it's already been out there. But could you give us a quick rundown of your key points of your platform? Sure, mm -hmm. sure. So what we have been talking about is are some of the big existential issues facing us collectively in every part of the city, but certainly in CD15. Uh, the crisis of our, our unhoused neighbors, our crisis of homelessness, and the tragedy on the street of uh, mental health uh, issues and drug addiction, um, and then through that whole continuum on housing of making sure that we're that we are you know sheltering and transitioning people into uh, uh, transitional housing and into permanent supportive housing with wraparound services, but also further making sure that the affordability of housing is available to the entire community, mm -hmm. and so really focusing on homelessness, transitioning people to uh, to housing but also focusing on the affordability of housing, of bringing in housing stock that we and our kids and our kids' kids can afford so that we can stay here in, in this community that we love. Two, there is, uh, as we come out of the pandemic, and hopefully we continue to come out of this pandemic, we know that it was a health crisis first, first and foremost, but it was also an economic crisis. It created a real hardship on a lot of folks who, had who either lost their employment or were at risk of losing their business, or essential workers who had their employment but were put at risk of, of injury and death because of the pandemic. So we need to make sure that we, we, we found out how fragile our local economy is, and we need to continue to brace up our local economy and make sure that businesses, you know, restaurants and, and, and visitor-serving businesses are protected. And so we've worked on issues related to that. We need to make sure our employees are protected and then also on the economy, we know that the pandemic and circumstances really impacted our ports. We need to make sure that our port are, uh, is, uh, is thinking of the future and, and staying resilient and that we're protecting jobs even as we're protecting the environment. Third, we've been spending a lot of time talking about just the health and safety of every community, of making sure that we have community-based public health, mental health, physical health that's available to all of our residents but also that we have communities that are safe, that we have well-trained and retained public safety officers, that we have real community engagement between 
the neighborhoods and our officers and making sure that we're investing in public safety in a way that, that suits every neighborhood in CD15. But I know those are uh, the three existential issues and as I'm meeting and greeting and talking to folks and knocking on hundreds of doors, the issues do come back to, Tim, tell me about the services. Tell me how you're going to make sure that we're also focusing on sidewalks, streets, curbs, gutters, tree trimming, and just doing those things that the government is expected to do that we pay our taxes for. And so we have to be able to focus on multiple things at once. With that, I was going to ask, what is your first order of business, if elected, like of all those issues, which would... Well, they, they are equally important, but the first order of business, and we'll get started before we get started, is to make sure that we are bringing the reform to our uh, system of addressing homelessness, uh, reforming the way the, 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 the housing agency, which is called LASA, the way the housing agency uh, is organized, the way it relates to the county, the way it relates to the city, the way that it, the way that it retains and supports caseworkers. I think most importantly, we need to make sure that we are ready to reform that system and to immediately dig in and uh, create uh, better relationships between the city and the county, more focused attention by the county departments. There are multiple county departments that deal with homelessness. There are multiple city departments that deal with the issue of homelessness. Make sure that we're focusing and working together. And I, I think that of all of the existential crises we face, I think you know, homelessness is at the top of the list. That's, that's really good to hear because I know that that has been kind of the number one concern for most of our community members. Mm -hmm. Like we ask at every the end of every episode, what are some concerns you have and what are some things that excite you? Concerns are almost always homelessness, you know, in, in this community. Yeah, can you elaborate a little bit on that plan since we're talking about it at this moment? Sure, yeah. sure. So one of the things, I'm going to use the term LASA. That's the, that's the housing agency. Can you say what that is? Uh, Los Angeles uh, uh, Homelessness uh, Services Authority, LASA. Anyway, it's what, what it is, it's a, and I might have the acronym wrong, it's a joint powers authority. Years ago, the city and the county were essentially fighting over who was responsible for these types of services. And litigation ensued, and the settlement, the resolution was, let's form this thing called LASA. Uh, and, and it's a, called a joint powers authority. The city writes a check, the county writes a check, they form an agency, and the agency was responsible for, for collecting the dollars that were available for the problem and distributing the dollars. Well, shortly after it was, and it was probably the right thing at the time, but the circumstances of uh, uh, folks who are unhoused, the numbers, and the circumstances on the street have changed, the sources of funding have changed, and so we've had other other agencies that have formed in and around LASA. And, and, and what has happened is that federal money caused this thing to, to be created called the Continuum of Care Council. And the Continuum of Care uh, works with LASA but doesn't necessarily answer to LASA. And then there's something called the CES system, which is the, um, basically the entry system and the, and the decision-making authority about how folks will get housing. That works with LASA, but doesn't necessarily answer to LASA. I see. So a centralization yeah, issue. Yeah, and then you have the county. You have multiple alphabet soup agencies that all deal with the issue, but they don't, they don't answer to LASA. Mm -hmm. Same thing at the city. Mm -hmm. And so we need, what we need to do is we need to have a, a centralized authority for you know, addressing this problem and make sure that everyone's working together. But we also, at the, at the bottom of the system, which is the most important part of the system, those are the service providers. We need to make sure that we're funding the service providers uh, and not spending too much money on management, funding service providers, and we need to give service providers flexibility mm -hmm. so they can address each problem uh, as a unique problem, just as they are, mm -hmm. uh, and, and not have to be stuck in the bureaucracy and paperwork mm -hmm. uh, that will impede uh, somebody like a Harbor Interfaith. Right. And I'm just, I'm just using that as an example. I'm not saying this is that they've been impeded this way but impede them from being able to address the problem as it needs to be addressed for the unique circumstances. Mm -hmm. So what I can see is centralization at the top, eliminate a lot of the overlapping um, uh, costs of management, get more of the funding to the service providers, have service providers have the flexibility to be able to answer the, the problem that's being addressed to them, 
And I'd also like to see better training and retention of those of those case managers mm -hmm. uh, who are the most critical part of the system. Retaining, um, would that be because of burnout in, right. in that industry? Okay. Right, in yeah. that industry, in the, in the, in that profession, mm -hmm. in that profession of case manager, field worker, uh, there's a lot of work. Uh, there is, uh, 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 you know, there's so much work, and it's low pay, mm -hmm. uh, and it, uh, and I don't think that there's uh, enough training or standardization of information, and so folks can easily get burnt out, and and it's really doesn't help the person who's unhoused if they have a case manager for a few weeks and the person disappears and then somebody else comes in we've just we've lost all that time yeah. and effort can I push just one thing and yep. toss this to my naiveness about no, knowing how these things work that's um, that I love that that plan is really like clear in centralizing a location your role as a city council member what exactly could you do that is that? a great question that's not a naive question that is a great question and as a city council member uh, I will only be 1 15th of the legislative decision-making authority that has to also work with the mayor to make a decision on an annual basis and a regular decision whether or not we write that check and stay a part of the joint powers authority. So it would be, it would be important to have a plan and a position but to engage other members of the council and to engage other parts of the government, the departments and the mayor's office, and to say here is where we should go. What we should do is, uh, you know, I'll need to be an advocate from the inside and say what we need to do is we need to focus LASA or, or whatever LASA becomes. We need to focus that role and have that role answer to us, the city, but we as a city and the county as a county has to also have a singular point of contact and needs to focus itself so that we are focusing all of our efforts and we need to use our role as one half of that Joint Powers Authority to say to LASA or whatever it becomes, and to the service agencies that we need you to retain your employees. We need you to have continuity in the field. Mm -hmm. And the way for them to do our way of enforcing that is the check that we write, mm -hmm. essentially, our mm -hmm. participation, and their way of enforcing that will be whatever creative way they can do it. But I think it's going to be you know, good pay and good training and uh, a balanced caseload, just the same way any company tries to retain its employees, treat its employees well, make sure that they get paid, uh, and uh, make them an integral part of the system. So that's reforming the system. Reforming, it's happening. reforming the system. Yeah, and doing your part in the legislative body to get yeah. that. And on a micro level in, let's say, CD15 particularly, is there something you as a city council member could do on, a, on the local? Yes, yeah, so there's a lot we can do. Uh, the, the city council office, because of our, because we will have offices in, in Watts and you know Wilmington and the Gateway and Harbor City and San Pedro and we'll have staff all over. We will be on the ground and know where um, where our people are, and it would be incumbent upon us to make sure that we're assisting to convene the um, uh, the there's something called SPA, the service provider area. Make sure that 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 the lead within the service area uh, and all of the service providers that they work with. Are, can all be in the same room and that we're information sharing. Council offices that do this are the most successful. We're information sharing and that we're supporting one another and not siloing ourselves. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's, um, thank you so much for that thorough answer because that is a big concern here in the community. Mm -hmm. And it's good to know that you do have some say and you can like affect change at a, at a higher level. Mm -hmm. um, so we actually have some very specific questions to get into. We, we kind of asked around and said, hey, are there any questions you want us to bring up? Um, so we'll get into that now. Okay, um, so we, we did touch on homelessness mm -hmm. and that's, that's great. Because that was a major issue. Um, so the first question that is another big issue or, or a big concern in the community mm -hmm. is what is your plan for the in inevitable loss of affordable housing on, in our waterfront communities? Um, as we are kind of seeing a little bit of gentrification and it seems as though we may get more. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, my, my plan as we, as we see new uh, developers come in uh, and opportunities for housing, my plan is to make sure that we're incorporating into each project affordability. What we will see you know, over time is that developers will or uh, uh, folks will have proposals to build new housing and as they build the housing, I want to make sure that we are incorporating 
uh, affordable housing into each project. And so that, so that as folks propose a plan, we'll have a percentage of affordable housing. We'll make sure that we are not eliminating existing affordable opportunities for the sake of un uh, for the sake of market rate housing. Okay, got it. So there is a specific plan in place to really address that because mm -hmm. it does seem that we are in a place right now where many of us who have been here and growing mm -hmm. up here our whole lives are having to kind of move away. Mm -hmm. That was the case for some of us in looking at the housing prices. You know, it does seem a little bit like an impossible dream <laughs> considering right. all the other economic issues right. that our generation, the newer generations that are growing up, are having. Mm -hmm. Right. So it'll be important for us as as proposals are made to make sure that we're incorporating affordability into each project. Mm. Okay. Wonderful. Um, one major concern we've also heard from our community mm -hmm. members is traffic, mm -hmm. which I'm sure you've heard. Um, can you address the concerns about the increase of traffic, specifically on Harbor and on Pacific streets, as well, of course, which impacts Gaffey and then impacts Western, mm -hmm. and with the construction of West Harbor as well? I'm sure there's a lot mm -hmm. of those concerns. Sure. So as we as we bring in projects, we will do environmental reviews of each project, which is typical and important. And part of the environmental review will be traffic impacts. And as proposals are being made for development, we will require that that important intersections are evaluated, and that development will have to make improvements to uh, streets. Uh, whether it's widening or turnouts or uh, other traffic improvements to make sure that traffic keeps moving. Bringing in new development and economic development will create trips, will create trips. But as we're creating trips and visits, we need to also make sure that we are... When you say trips and visits, you're talking about people coming in from other places. People coming in from other places. Yes. More visitors, more daily people in, right. in San Pedro. And so this is our opportunity also to invest in... Uh, more mass transit mm -hmm. to make sure that especially on waterfront development that we have we have local transit mm -hmm. that can move people between the sites whether it's you know Altice to West Harbor to the USS Iowa and do loops through town uh, but then also that we the city council person needs to um, uh, advocate in front of MTA and the city to make sure that we're investing in the larger transportation system mm -hmm. and bringing in you know better and more frequent uh, transit systems uh, all the way down to San Pedro. So one of the challenges with the harbor area in Wilmington and Harbor City and San Pedro is that we're kind of the end of the line. And we need to remind folks that we have the same needs. And as we are developing property and creating visitors, uh, that we need to have folks be able to move in and out with rapid transit, which can improve our traffic situation. So that's two, just to clarify, that's two separate organizations. We've got DASH, which is operates within San Pedro, and then MTA that brings from other cities. And, okay. Right, 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 right. And there's also the, the kind of the qualification of like density, right? We need a certain amount of people to actually get this stuff running to us, right? Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, uh, that's, what the, that's what the bureaucracy would tell you. Mm -hmm. We also need advocacy to make sure that we're bringing in the dollars. There's actually a third system, too. There, there is, as you're bringing in, as you're bringing in new development, we can we can impose upon the private sector, and non-governmental agencies or quasi-governmental agencies like the business improvement district or the developers themselves to invest in their own systems of moving traffic uh, around the, uh, especially the west side of the main channel, such as shuttles or shuttles. trolleys or I see. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. And so we need to be using every tool available to us, whether it's a larger MTA system, the Department of Transportation of the city, which does the DASH system, or the private or quasi-governmental sector to bring in real local uh, people movement uh, and to create as many modes of transportation as possible. Um, speaking of traffic, and this kind of relates to it, and this has also been brought up in one of our, our questions from people we've asked, um, as we get busier here in downtown, as West Harbor gets built, there's this concern of, of parking. Mm -hmm. um, we've lost the courthouse, you know, parking mm -hmm. lot, and mm -hmm. so people are struggling to find parking in downtown. Will there be something to kind of alleviate that? The answer is yes, and we need to be creative in all these solutions. I'm still very focused on... Um, uh, on making sure that we take our private development, which is right across the street from us here, 
and avail ourselves of the parking spaces in the Topaz building. You're talking about the structure that's yes. kind of in where Ojas is. We're kind of where Ojas is, and, and folks refer to it as a Topaz building. Mm -hmm. And while I was at the PBID, there were discussions uh, to figure out a way to make that parking available fairly, fairly to the owners of the building and to the community, uh, some sort of a system where we could maybe gate that system and create a validation system for the downtown businesses to be able to park in that building. I have hopes for that. As of right now, it's not open to the public? As of right now, it's not open to the public. Right, because I always see people parking there, but I never felt comfortable and, or could ever approach it. So, okay, that's good to clarify. There is, there is a, when, when we have filming, when I was with the PBID, we worked to make sure that when there was filming downtown, which further impacts parking, that the, the folks doing the filming, pulling the permit, would have an obligation to direct folks to that parking and make that parking available. And so that's, that is an occasional and temporary system, but it's also a model for what we could do in the future. Also, we have other parking lots in downtown, and what I'd like to investigate is whether or not we could put structure on those parking lots to create more parking off street. Uh, the, we, there will only ever be so much street parking. Uh, we're not gonna be making new streets. Uh, and with the platforms, with the outdoor dining platforms, which I think are a great success and really important, yeah. And I worked very hard on that when I was at the PBID to protect local business, going back to one of my platform issues. Uh, we brought in those platforms, but we knew those platforms would also eliminate some parking. And so that was a trade-off, protecting businesses and making sure that they didn't close during the pandemic, but also impacted us on parking, which creates even more pressure to come up with a Topaz type idea, or as new development comes in, put requirements to have visitor parking uh, for the downtown area, and also to take our own lots and see if we can structure those to create a couple levels of parking. Mm -hmm. It's all very expensive, but also an important part of the economic development of the region. Mm -hmm. I will also go back to the answer that, that we always have to think about uh, modes of mass transit, mm -hmm. of public transportation, to alleviate our parking issues. If we could put ourselves in a position where folks feel you know, safe and comfortable to be able to jump on a bus or a shuttle to get to their destination, mm -hmm. Uh, that will help us with our parking and our traffic. Or on a bike. Or on a bike. <laughs> I'm or always a, advocating for the bike Or on ride. a bike. <laughs> Perfect. Great. Yeah. Or, or on a bike or on a scooter or on foot. Mm -hmm. yeah. I mm -hmm. mean, creating housing near uh, places of entertainment and places of work and putting folks in a position where they can just walk is healthy and good for our environment and good for our lifestyle. Yes. So CD15, it is not just San Pedro. Mm -hmm. We're the Pedro podcast, right? We're Hello San Pedro. So we're focusing a lot of these questions toward our community. But we know that CD15 includes many other communities. Mm -hmm. Can you list those for us? Oh, sure. It's a, CD15 is a beautiful, beautiful, diverse community that begins uh, at the north end at Watts and comes down the gateway, uh, Harbor Gateway North, Harbor Gateway South, into Harbor City, Wilmington, and then San Pedro. And I have been committed from day one of this campaign, actually day one of my, my career in, in law and politics, of serving every part of this council district. I have deep roots, in, especially in, in, in Watts and the Gateway and Wilmington because of my work with Jim Hahn, and have uh, spent so much time and, and have developed, reestablished and developed so many deep relationships in Harbor City, Wilmington, Harbor Gateway and Watts is an important part of my campaign. So I, I really just wanna, there's a two-parter to that. So um, I know, we've said this before on the podcast, Angela Romero actually said this before, that um, you know, San Pedro, the San Pedro community has a really great voting ethic, and so we always turn out, and mm -hmm. that usually results in a San Pedro win for us in this position. Um, but that I've also heard concerns because of that, that San Pedro gets a lot of the favor and a lot of um, that we may get our needs addressed and then some of the other communities may not be as equally heard. What can you say to those concerns? What I can say to those concerns is that they are, they are valid concerns and I understand, I understand you know, why people say them and I understand the, uh, and I hear the, 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 the call. And the call, whether I'm in you know, Wilmington, Watts, Harbor Gateway, uh, Harbor City, is that we want to be equal partners. We want to be an important part of this council district. And that's been my commitment from day one. 
the truth is there, there, uh, there, there is a way of winning an election, but there is only one way of governance. And you need to govern. One needs to govern, and I will govern with equity and with fairness. Every single decision we make will begin with what's equitable. What is equitable? For example, uh, the impacts of the port bear, uh, are, are greater on Wilmington than they are on San Pedro. They just are. Uh, and our need to mitigate those impacts are greater in Wilmington than they are in San Pedro, which is not to say that any community gets left behind. We treat every community with dignity, but we make sure that, that because I lay my head down in San Pedro every night, it's important for me to recognize the systemic and historic inequity, which is pervasive because of our, our country's history, our state's history, our city's history, I have to recognize that there's been an inequity across this country and across this district and make sure that every single time we make a decision, we're thinking about, is this good for Watts? Is this good for the Gateway? Is this good for Harbor City, for Wilmington, uh, and for San Pedro? That's great. It sounds like all each community is very front of mind for you, and you're considering all of them when you're making decisions. Mm -hmm. that's, that's incredible. Very important, and I say that everywhere. And I'm very... I'm, I'm, I'm very careful to make sure that we talk about this in San Pedro. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And we talk about this issue in San Pedro, and uh, f I think folks are very open and willing and on board to make sure that every decision that we make collectively as a community is good for the entire district. Yeah. Can, on that note, can you quickly give us some objectives for each of the cities? Sure. Sure. Um, in particular, so I'll just run from north to south. In Watts, um, we, have, we have a proliferation of low-income housing. We've had a lot, they, they've had their share of, of housing, which is good, which is important. But I think we need to focus more on economic development, on, on creating more freedom plazas, which is a huge success immediately adjacent to Jordan Downs. And we need to do more of that to make sure that we're creating storefronts and shopping districts and opportunities, especially for the entrepreneurs of Watts. We need to also make sure that, that Watts has the opportunity to showcase its unique history and culture, from the Watts Towers to the, the history of, you know, of music and poetry around, around the Mufundi building. And so I want, to bring, I want to bring tourism and visitors to Watts. In the Gateway, as you think about the, the North Gateway and the South Gateway, the real challenge is that because that's a narrow strip of land, they have not, it, is, it has not had enough of an identity in the eyes of the city. And so we just, we just need to bring, bring services like work source centers and park lands and, and opportunities for library, libraries uh, through the gateway. So the gateway really needs some of our, our basic city infrastructure and needs to be, we need to be proud of them and, ha and, and recognize their identity as a gateway community. There's also a lot of, uh, high-speed traffic that runs through the gateway, and we need to protect those, that, the housing and the children in the gateway. Um, and Harbor City, much of the same. Harbor City bears a whole bunch of the impacts of the port with uh, truck traffic and truck parking, and we know that story in Wilmington, which is true, also true in, the, in Harbor City. And so we need to make sure that we're protecting the neighborhoods of Harbor City, the school places in Harbor City, that we're you know, providing basic city services, and uh, keeping up the, the parklands, again, the, the, and working with, the, with Narbonne to make sure that there's safe passages to and from the school. In Wilmington, I've talked a little bit about this, Wilmington bears so much impact from port development and from port operations. We need to address the truck traffic that runs through residential neighborhoods. We need to make uh, improvements to truck routes so that we're taking those trucks out of residential neighborhoods. We need to make sure that we are addressing the illegal parking of containers and stacking and, all, and address all of those impacts in Wilmington. That needs to be an extreme focus. Um, and then San Pedro, I think we need to continue to work on the economic uh, development along the waterfront. But each community has its unique needs and its, its unique opportunities. And each community is beautiful and deserving of our attention. Amazing. Yes. Thank you. We're going to move on to uh, environmental mm -hmm. issues. Um, the first one, how do you plan to address um, port pollution in mm -hmm. our waterfront? So uh, port pollution is one of the great 
challenges uh, that we have and going all the way back to 25 years ago when I worked with Jim Hahn, um, you know, we were the, the first administration, the first place in the country because of the China Shipping Settlement, which is an important settlement, to begin plugging in ships. So I kind of think of that as one of the you know, early moves that leads us to the Clean Air Action Plan and the modifications to the Clean Air Action Plan. And while we have come a ways, there's a ways to go. And so uh, for port pollution, uh, air pollution, and, and some water contamination, but for port pollution, we need to you know, continue and redouble and triple our efforts to make sure that all of the equipment uh, that is used in and around the yards have two elements, no emissions and human operation. Protect the jobs. There is nothing mutually exclusive between jobs and cleaning the air. Mm -hmm. And so it'd be important for us to continue to work on making sure that yard hustlers and all the yard equipment uh, has zero emissions. It could be hydrogen, it could be electricity, you know, the, the technology will, will tell us. Um, and then we need to continue to work on the, the engine systems and the fuels of trucks and, and, and make those zero emission uh, and work with the industry and work with all of our partners from the you know, government to the private sector to clean up those engines. I'd like to also increase the amount of rail that we use because if we have more rail, uh, on dock rail and near dock rail, we can reduce the number of rubber tire trips which will help us in traffic. Could also help us uh, get there faster on clean air emissions because if we can get if we can get the locomotives, the, you know, the engines on trains, which will be fewer numbers of engines, but get those converted and get the, and get the uh, cargo into the Alameda corridor. We know today, we know today that about 75% of our containers go out on rubber tire, 25% goes out on rail. If we could flip that script, we could also increase the usage of the Alameda corridor, which itself is designed in a way to be more environmentally sensitive, you know, removed from the removed from traffic, fewer, fewer car stops, you know, as it travels up north. Um, so the yard equipment, uh, getting, uh, getting uh, the um, uh, containers, you know, out of the yard. Then the next big issue, uh, importantly, are the ships. We need to use our market share and use our ability as one of the most successful ports in the world to require clean ships and, and, and clean shipping lanes. And the work that we do by saying to the industry that we need to, we need to see the Pacific Rim trade route uh, go green will be really, really important. Mm -hmm. And we can do that. Mm -hmm. Just as 25 years ago we required ships to plug in, we were, that, was considered, that was considered innovative and maybe some people would say crazy then. It is not crazy to say today that we're going to use our market share, our importance in this worldwide trade industry to say that we are going to demand uh, green shipping lanes. Mm -hmm. okay. And then as a city council member, can you specify a little bit more closely on your role to being able to execute those Thank plans? you. You keep coming back to that I question. <laughs> so uh, one individual council member has that individual vote and has the ability to rally the votes around him or herself uh, because we have important oversight over the Port of Los Angeles. Under the charter, the city charter, if a contract or if a lease goes above a certain amount of value or a certain number of years, and virtually any, every important lease does, it has review in front of the city council. So it has to make it to the city council. And so um, 10 votes, uh, eight votes uh, or 10 votes will affect how the commission and how the mayor react to that contract. So if we as the council say that we are demanding something to be clean and green, and I don't have an expectation that a mayor won't or a commission won't, but if we're demanding it, that we can, we can rally enough votes to force a mayor or force a commission to go clean and green. And so that's an important role. But I will also say the council member of CD15 bears a disproportionate amount of power over this circumstance just from the bully pulpit. In the sense of influence. Because, because yes, the council member of CD15 uh, is, yes, one council member of 15, but is also the council member that has jurisdiction over the port. Right, where the community yeah. is. And has the, the vote and can say, mm -hmm. my 260,000 people are demanding 
that the ship be green. My 260,000 people are demanding that we retain these jobs because it's critical to our, uh, to our economy, is demanding that those, that those workers are safe and have clean air and the community have clean air. And we're demanding that when trucks leave the site that they don't impair Wilmington and Harbor Gateway and Watts. And so the power of a council member being aligned with his constituency and saying we are demanding this is huge. That is really good to know. Yes, like could, I said, it, it really does seem that you have the power to kind of impact change on a, on a bigger level. It's just using, it's understanding it and using that leverage. And then um, nearing the end, um, so one other question that I had that, um, and I'm, you've kind of mentioned this, but what is your plan to have CD15 better align with more ambitious environmental goals such as zero waste? Um, mm -hmm. renewable energy, zero carbon, less in industrial emissions, recycling, mm -hmm. composting. Thank you. All issues near and dear to my heart, uh, especially aligned with my interest in Altice. I was going to say, I feel like this connects you with that and it, it's yes, yes. your time to shine. <laughs> so <laughs> protecting, uh, protecting the environment and, uh, and creating a future that's sustainable for all of us is really one of the closest issues to my heart. Uh, it is it is along with the immediate issue of, of homelessness and housing folks, this is the existential issue that if we don't solve this issue, nothing else matters. Nothing else matters. And so um, I think that, that, that you know, it's a very complicated question with a lot of pieces and I'll just begin at the beginning for me. And, and Altice is a great example of how, how what we need to do is we need to you know, create jobs and a future that has um, that you know creates opportunity for folks, but also um, in industries and technologies that are that are sustainable for the future. So you look at you look at the the emerging blue economy. I call it the emerging blue economy. Um, I'd like to see Los Angeles be a center for uh, for ocean farming, for creating sustainable proteins in the in the water, whether it's seaweeds, mussels, bivalves you know, opportunities for us to have proteins that are less environmentally damaging than terrestrial proteins, like cows, pigs, and chickens. Um, and those are, those, are, uh, those are food sources, and they're also uh, uh, the, the, the growth of a seaweed or a bivalve actually cleans the water. And we can create jobs around that so that we could have a, you know, a future in the blue economy. I think that uh, you know, on terrestrial issues, uh, you know, to continue working with, uh, you know, we have a, a mostly a public system, but we also have a private system of trash, our trash maintenance, our trash management. We have, you know, the, you, your residential trash gets picked up by the city. Your council member and the CD15 needs to keep pressing the city to make sure that we are being environmentally sensitive, that we are, uh, that we are, you know, recycling as much as we possibly can, that we're, you know, creating a, you know, low emissions uh, in our uh, digesters to take some of that, some of that trash and turn it into energy. Uh, but on the, on the commercial side, we actually have contractors that move our trash. And we need to make sure that we use our leverage as the council office to have our contractors and our private system also participate, you know, do all of the things that we need to do to um, recycle and to convert uh, trash into energy without emissions. This um, is for the commercial side would be trash that's public that's you see throughout the streets. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So, I see. so when you see a, a a business has to you know disposes of its trash, it has a a contract with in this area it's Athens Athens disposal. Um, so, I'd like to I'd like to participate in in all of the you know federal, state, and local programs, uh, and make sure that CD15 is a support to those programs where we're you know converting all of our systems to low emissions. And I'd like to see the Port of Los Angeles and CD15 collectively be sort of a, sort of an incubator, a center for driving uh, environmental sustainability. The California effect, yeah. localized. <laughs> right, have CD15 be the California uh -huh. to the rest of the <laughs> city. Center, yeah. <laughs> because we do have, uh, there are a couple of huge um, uh, emissions challenges. One's the port, the other's the airport. Um, but you know the port is here, mm -hmm. 
and we have we have uh, legislators and, and local commissioners and local folks who are committed and we just need to align our commitments and make sure that we you know bring the ship in as they say mm -hmm. this is great um well, I think we touched on all of the issues that re we really wanted to get answers mm -hmm. for, especially for our listeners who submitted questions. Is there anything else you wanted to add? Mm -hmm. No, I just really, I really enjoy this. I could, I could talk forever. Mm -hmm. I really enjoy your time, and thank you for, thank you for doing this podcast. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Absolutely. Um, I think this is going to be really, really valuable to the community, and um, I, I thank you so much for your time. Thank you. <laughs> that's all for our episode follow us for more on instagram at hello sp podcast huge thanks to rock ashfields at palm realty boutique for providing us such a gorgeous recording space and thank you to all of our amazing patreon supporters leave us a review and share this episode with your friends neighbors and coworkers. see you next week